make our way uh, to Luke chapter 16, if you would, this morning, but I'm not going to read that text right away. I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 6 to begin. This was written by the Apostle Paul, and before I read, let's just dedicate this time to the Lord. Father, thank you for the time we have to open up your word. I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to your truth. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Give us courage to follow through through your spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The apostle writes, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It's a short list, isn't it? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let me read for you the story of King Midas. Ever heard of him? In Greek mythology, King Midas ruled over the country of Phrygia. He had every comfort and luxury the world could afford. The only love that rivaled the love he had for his riches was that which he had for his daughter, Marigold. His greed was such that he used to spend his days counting his golden coins and covering himself in them as though he was bathing in them. Money was his obsession. One day, Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry, passed through the kingdom of Midas. One of his companions was separated from the company and ended up in the famous rose garden surrounding the palace of King Midas. Once he was found, King Midas hosted him for several days and then reunited him with Dionysus. Because of this kindness, King Midas was granted one wish. His wish... I hope everything I touch turns to gold. And so it was. He extended his arm and touching a small table and it immediately turned into gold. He then touched a chair, the carpet, the door, his bathtub, a table. And so he kept on running in his madness all over his palace until he got exhausted and happy all at the same time. And happy he was until he picked up a rose to smell its fragrance. But he couldn't, because it had turned to gold. And then he picked up a grape and bread to eat, but he couldn't, because they turned to gold. And then a glass of water to drink, but he couldn't, because it too had turned to gold. And suddenly, terror came upon him, and he realized he couldn't eat and drink, and soon he would die of starvation. And so he burst into tears. At the sound of his weeping, his beautiful daughter, Marigold, ran to him, embraced him, and also turned to gold. Learning to deny our craving for the God of mammon is one of the greatest trials our faith will ever face. While consumerism and materialism flourish as two of the most subtle, destructive, and deadly idols of our day, in general, we tend to get uncomfortable when this particular idol is addressed. 
So while this might be a touchy topic, it is a necessary one. Part of the sensitivity is due to the fact that there are so many perspectives on this topic within the church. Let me just speak of a few of these categories. Some pastors and Christians openly share what is called the radical prosperity gospel. And to be honest with you, I hate even attaching the word gospel to it because it is anything but the gospel. And the teaching goes something like this. God wants you to be wealthy, so partner with him by faith to pursue riches because you can't accomplish much in life without them. So God wants you to have money so you can partner with him for that money so then you can do things for him, but really it's a pursuit of money. It's radical prosperity gospel. In Christ, God desires you to be wealthy. Others share a light prosperity gospel. And the light prosperity gospel make it sound much more subtle. It minimizes sin, minimizes pain, and just talks about how well life should go once you receive Jesus. That God wants you to have a healthy body, a healthy marriage, healthy relationships, healthy kids, a healthy bank account, healthy financial future. Basically, everything in your life should be easy and pain-free. And once people see how wonderful your life is, because that's what God desires for them too, then they will want it as well. So they're drawn. These false gospels have been exported from this country around the world to impoverished men and women who are told that their babies will not die nor their pigs' health fail if only they would give money. Those preachers then collect the money, get back on their jets, and leave, having exported a false gospel. On the other extreme are pastors and Christians who say if you are not living in material poverty then you are not truly following Jesus. That also is not the gospel. We must properly understand what Jesus said to cut through all this noise. And that is what we have been attempting to do. This morning is the final sermon of a three-part series on financial stewardship. We'll be beginning a new series next week, uh, or actually in a few weeks. But this is much more than that. The scriptures have been driving home the point that Jesus will come and settle accounts with every single one of us. And he will ask his disciples, as we have seen, have you stored up treasure on earth or in heaven? Matthew 6. He will come and ask each of us, what have you done with the talents I've given you? Matthew 25. And while the passages are speaking of more than money, they most directly challenge us on our relationship to money. So if you have a Bible, please, I hope you have opened to Luke chapter 16. And Luke's gospel shows us that Jesus had a lot to say about money. Do you realize that half the teachings and parables of Jesus brought in teachings that related to money in some way? Half the time. He talked about it all the time. Uh, Luke records Jesus as saying some very difficult things. Luke chapter 6, verse 24. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. He shared the parable of the rich fool, Luke 12, 
We're, we're going to look at the parable of the dishonest manager this morning, Luke 16. In the same chapter, he gives another parable about the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Luke tells us about Jesus' conversation with the rich ruler in Luke 18. And then Luke tells us about the story of Zacchaeus, who gives half of his possessions to the poor, Luke 19. Jesus told his followers, and he tells us, what our attitude towards our possessions and wealth should be. And that's who we must listen to. Let's remember, friends, as we open up this story, a parable is an earthly story with a new earth meaning. Parables, in essence, help us understand how God's kingdom operates, and they prepare us to be citizens of that kingdom. So as Jesus brought these teachings to us, he was preparing us to be citizens of the kingdom that he's building. And one day that kingdom will be united with the earth and all of that will become God's kingdom in perfection. It's that unity restored. So he's preparing us through these parables for his kingdom. And more than that, even how to live now. Let's begin and pick up the story in verse 1. We'll walk through this together. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The parable is very straightforward. There is nothing allegorical in it. It is not a hidden meaning. It's all right there for us to see. There's a dishonest manager that worked for a rich man. And you can summarize these two verses with one phrase. When that dishonest manager mismanaged his bosses, the masters, the rich man's wealth and property, basically the boss came to him, the master came to him and said, you're fired. That's it. You're done. The manager didn't own the possessions. They weren't his. He just managed them. And he was mismanaging. His job was to build the estate of the rich man. And instead of building the rich man's estate, he was wasting resources. And so he was fired. The desk is cleared. The computer's given back. Everything's gone. Who do you think the rich man is in the story? This is the kingdom of God. Have you ever been fired? It's not a fun experience. Or so I've heard. (laughs) My favorite firing story is a story of my (laughs) mother-in-law. She worked a few years back for Hallmark. Yes, she got fired from Hallmark How is it even possible to get fired from Hallmark? (laughs) And yet this is kind of how it went down. Her boss came to her around Christmas time. They had known each other for years and said, you must wear the Santa hat. She said, I'm not wearing the Santa hat. Insubordination, and she's let go. She's fired. That was it. That was the end. At the time, she didn't think it was funny. I've always found it to be funny. I've tried to empathize, but I still haven't found the empathy in me. I I just still laugh about it. So now it's funny to all of us, but she was let go. Well, what happens to this manager when he was let go? The manager says to himself, verse 3, what shall I do? 
since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So the guy starts having a conversation inside his own head, which is a good thing to do if you've just lost your job. He is a a white-collar worker without a callus on his hands and without any motivation to work hard. So the idea of manual labor, forget it, not happening. The idea of begging, no way. The solution he dreams up here is actually pretty ingenious. And we'll get to that in a moment. But in order to understand how he dealt with some of these things in a fairly ingenious way, we need to understand a bit more about the culture. Uh, So you need to understand that it was illegal in Jewish culture in which Jesus was sharing this parable to charge interest, excuse me, interest to other Jews. There was no such thing as principle and interest. So what they would normally do is hide the interest in the loans themselves, So that the principal included the interest. It was accepted to charge up to 100% interest on certain commodities and possessions. And instead of calling it principal and interest, they just say that's the price and all the interest is built in. This was a common business practice of the day and one in which Jesus built upon here. He's most likely talking about these types of practices within this story. So the manager, according to the common practice business uh, ways of the Jewish culture, he might uh, have been giving out these types of loans to his master's debtors. So listen to what he does. Verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. The debtor actually only owed 50 measures of oil. That's about 400 gallons, by the way. The other 50 measures were most likely the manager's commission. So the he chops the debt from 100 to 50, from, 400, or from 800 gallons to 400 gallons. Now, 800 gallons, by the way, which that's a crop of about 150 olive trees. It's a huge amount. And he cuts this in half. Then he said to another, verse 7, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So let's go back to math class for a moment. This time, he writes off 20% commission on a product that was not so upcharged as oil was. Wheat didn't have the same upcharge percentage as oil did. So this time, it's only 20%. So he cuts the debt they owed the rich man. And by doing so, here's the cleverness. By doing so, they, the debtors, became indebted to whom? To him. Well, now his future's taken care of. Now his future is secure. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. If you're listening to Jesus, you expect him to say, the master came back, found out he didn't get all of what he thought he was going to get, and the dishonest manager was arrested and found hanging from the gallows the next morning. 
That's exactly what you expect to hear. But this is the genius of Jesus. This is where the parable turns. This is where the shock and the surprise enters the story. Instead of hearing what they expected, he says the master commended the dishonest manager. The guy's a crook for his shrewdness. The master, it seems, recognized this man's quick thinking and foresight. The master commends the crook for doing such a fine job of looking out for number one. And his disciples are left thinking, I don't get it. And we're left thinking, this doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus say this? Here's the lesson. Look at the second part of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And that is the moment when the disciples realized he was talking about them. Let me explain it to you. In other words, the manager does everything in his power to secure his future. He wasn't concerned with the present. He was setting up a better future for himself. Now we see Jesus' point. He says, be like this man. What, are you do- what, what you are doing right now sets up your future. Stop paying so much attention to the here and now and give some attention to the things that will matter for eternity. Or let me just say this in one pointed sentence. If only you would be as desperately quick thinking, quick moving, quick acting for the sake of the gospel as the corrupt manager was for his own well-being. See, people in the world, the sons of the, the world as it's stated here, are constantly thinking, I got to think quickly. I got to get ahead. I've got to build. I've got to set myself up for success. How do I make sure that I get where I need to go? How do I get more? And Jesus says, they've kind of got something figured out, but their application's wrong. He's saying, live with that same drive. Live with that same ingenuity. Live with that same determination when it comes to living for the gospel and building the kingdom of God. That's the point of the parable. Use the resources God has given you for eternity, not the temporal. Use the resources God has given you for eternity, not the temporal. Every parable is filled with significance, and we find at least three lessons from Christ that will drive home this challenge that we all, we all this morning are confronted with, this challenge to use the resources God has given you for eternity, not for the temporal, the here and now. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. You might think that's a very confusing sentence. What is he saying? Here's the lesson. Invest your possessions in others for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Invest your possessions in others for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Who are these friends? Make friends, it says. Most would suggest friends are people who God has allowed us to influence for Jesus using the resources and possessions he has given us. So here's the picture. Just like the story, just like the parable, we have been given possessions 
We've been given wealth from the master, it's his, not ours, to manage for the sake of the master. And as we manage those things, make friends, use all those resources to bring about change in people's lives for the gospel. And as you do that, when you are welcomed into heaven, it won't just be a welcoming with God and the angels. It will be with those people who you invested in by sharing your resources and leveraging them for the sake of the gospel, and they will welcome you into your eternal home. See, all the stuff really isn't our stuff. It's the master's stuff, and he's having us manage his stuff. And it's meant to be used for one purpose. Did you know that? The scripture says enjoy it. So we are to enjoy our possessions, our homes, the people in our lives, the material gain that he has prospered us with, whatever measure that might be. But while we enjoy it, there is only one purpose for it. And the only purpose for it, as we manage it, is the furtherance of the gospel. That's it. Did you realize that this morning? That's what Jesus is saying to us. This goes way beyond money, but again, it includes money. We invest our resources for the sake of the gospel. We use our homes for others. If you're having a Super Bowl party tonight, same idea. Use it. For the sake of the gospel. If you have a second home, use it to refresh others. Whether it is a car being borrowed or a lawnmower, we use everything we can for the gospel. Why? Because we're thinking about the future. Like this manager was. Eternity. Jesus spiritualizes it. Not the here and now. I hear stories of this all the time. I, I feel privileged to be able to hear the stories of how so many in this church family have leveraged what God has entrusted to them for the sake of the gospel. Just last week, I received a Facebook message from one of our women, and she was asking if she could donate a dress still for our Night to Shine event coming up. The Night to Shine event is an event that we do at our Troy campus where this year will be over 500 special needs adults who will come and basically have a prom night. And they're all given a buddy, and they're showed an amazing time, and they're all developing relationship. We invite them into our special needs ministries at all of our campuses. We even have one here that meets at 10. And she, she Facebooked me and said, can I just give one of my dresses and let them use it? Because not all of these adults have the means to buy suits and dresses, so we set out dresses for them so they could pick one up and, and feel special and unique at that party. And so she said, this is, this is what I've got. Can, can I give it? Can I give it? This is what I'm talking about here. This is what Jesus is talking about here, using whatever we have for the gospel to spread the love of Christ and the message of Christ. I remember when Katie and I threw our first Super Bowl party. It's Super Bowl Sunday, so I have to use the illustration. At my home for middle school kids, it was back in 2003. And I remember we had a ranch in Troy, And we had all these kids, and that was a specific day where it was not snow on the ground, it was mud on the ground. And so all these middle school boys were out playing tackle football. And after they were done playing tackle football, a hundred middle school kids poured in through our back door wall into our house. Our house only had carpet. They did not take off their shoes. 
I was frustrated when I looked at that carpet after they left. Katie was frustrated when we looked at that carpet. But the day came when we sold the home. We cleaned that carpet professionally a couple times. That stain wasn't coming out. But when we, hold, when we sold that house, I remember thinking specifically, walking out the back door wall, stepping over the stain, and thinking that stain's there because we were attempting to leverage something that we were given so these kids would come to know Jesus. Now, the truth is, I have a few of those stories in my life. I've been the recipient of many, many more from many of you. It's amazing to see the family of God use what God has given for the sake of God's kingdom. That's what makes us look different. As we think about this, look at verse 10. And Jesus continues his warning or his parable, or both. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Lesson number two, that helps us use our possessions for eternity and not for the temporal. Be faithful with money, and God will trust you with true spiritual riches. Let's not allow this statement to be neutered. If you're not faithful with money, that's what unrighteous wealth is, money. Then God will not trust you with true riches. What are true riches? True riches have to do with people, the care of people, leadership for the gospel. And maybe you're thinking, well, I never wanted that anyways. One day, when everything is put right, God will come and show us what real riches is and all the things that this world calls riches will be gone done away with they'll be gone and then we'll see what truly matters jesus goes on verse 12 and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's who will give you that which is your own it's the same point said a different way if you are not trustworthy with god's material possessions he's put under your care how can he give you eternal spiritual possessions of your own I love how Martin Luther talks about this in one of his commentaries. He says, therefore, listen carefully to this. Therefore, we must all use these things, this stuff, upon the earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property for the host belongs to him. Just so should we also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus the life of every Christian is only a lodging for the night since we have here no continuing city but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. All the stuff we have now, it's just the stuff at the hotel. It's just the hotel. And as we pass through, we're going to come to our eternal home. And those are the things that Jesus keeps saying over and over. We've been talking about it for three weeks now. That's where he says, make your investment. Not back here in the hotel. 
One of our pastors had a friend who leads a church in Las Vegas, and he was speaking with him about what the church does with the handling of their Sunday morning offering. So how, how did they collect the money, count the money, do all the things with the money from the church? And I found the story kind of fascinating, interesting. You know, you'll get the point here in a moment. But the, the pastor was asked to describe the process, and so he wrote it down. And this is literally what they do, patterned after the casinos of Las Vegas. Have you ever seen Ocean's Eleven? This is how it went down. Offering was collected in bags. The bags were placed in a solid metal casino cart, just like the ones used in the movies. The cart was locked and escorted to a private room down a facilities hallway off the auditorium with two church volunteer security guys, two volunteers from the ushers area, and one staff person. When offering reaches the room, there is a team of eight to ten individuals who had all passed background checks, who then counted the money on high tables wearing aprons with no pockets. All their personal items were left outside the room along with cell phones in lockers. There were also two to three computers present to process checks. This was done under the supervision of someone from our accounting department while they were being watched by someone from our security department on security cameras in another location. All money is counted and deposited in a safe, and within one hour of the final service, it is picked up by a Brinks truck with two armed individuals, one church security person, as well as a rep from our finance team. We built the room and the safe as close to the street from the auditorium as possible so that the money was not out in public for more than 100 feet. Wow. That's a pretty impressive system. <laughs> Bit of an overkill. I, I, I'm sure if you wanted to steal from us, it might be a little easier, but um, <laughs> hopefully not much easier. Here's the irony. The church wants to make sure the money given to God is not stolen from God. The prophet Malachi in the Old Testament takes a whole different approach in chapter 3 of his prophetic word. He is speaking to the people of God, and basically, if I were to update his message into this illustration, he's saying, Malachi, that is, to the people of God, you've got your security cameras in the wrong room. They shouldn't be in the room where the money is counted. They should be in the worship center, because God told Malachi that is where the real robbery takes place. The robbery is not after the money is given. It is that the money is not given to begin with. The way we use our wealth and our spirituality, they are bound together by the words of Jesus. And the sooner we realize this, the better it will be for our souls. Maybe you've been struggling in giving. I've been told that all across our campuses, this is just Woodside, but it's probably representative of the church at large, all across our campuses, I don't know names and numbers and all that stuff, but I've been told that of all those who do give, give something to Woodside Bible Church throughout the year, 60% give less than $1,000. Maybe giving makes you nervous. Maybe my comments right here made you anxious. Maybe this bothers you. Maybe you're not sure what to give or how to give. 1 Corinthians, the New Testament passage, the Apostle Paul tells us to give as we have been prospered, not some kind of legalistic percentage, a matter of the heart, to give as we are prospered. 
maybe through the course of this series, God is challenging you through the words of Jesus to start trusting him in this area of your life. We've set up what we're calling all of our pastors a 90-day challenge. And basically, if you're one of those who hasn't truly trusted God obediently in this area, we would invite you, challenge you to go onto just our website, go to the Give tab. There's a section right underneath there. It says 90-day challenge. And say, God, I'm going to pray for these 90 days and I'm going to begin this process of giving. Not because I expect to get some great wealth in return, but because I know that you are the giver of all good things and I can never outgive you. And so as I give back to you, I want to experience the joy of stewarding your possessions well. Now I'm going to be honest. I feel the weight of this message when I share it with you. And I feel the weight of it not because I'm concerned you'll be offended. I'm not concerned this morning whether you will be offended. But I do want you to feel my heart in this. What I feel the weight, what I feel for us as a church family is I feel a weight because Jesus, the master, is going to return to settle accounts. And I want to know that our church family is prepared for that day. That's my job as a pastor, to help all of us be prepared to see Jesus. And sometimes that means we have to talk about things that might be uncomfortable because in our culture and society, this is one of those. But I hope that you understand that that's why I preach these texts, that's why we talk about these things, even though some might take it the wrong way. My fear is that maybe you're thinking if you're newer to this church family or maybe you've only been here for three weeks <laughs> that all we do is talk about money and how to get your money. <laughs> I can tell you that couldn't be further from the truth. I don't want anything from you. I want something for you. And God wants something for you. He wants you to experience the joy of realizing that he's enough and that he's our security and that he's our God, not mammon. And so I invite you into that, the joy of generosity, of managing faithfully, of stewardship. But all of this is truly meant, we only talk about this stuff once every three, four years, is truly meant to help us be ready for the day when the master will come and settle accounts with you. And I will not be there next to you, and your spouse will not be there next to you, and it will be you with Jesus. Are you prepared for that day? Look at verse 13. Let's end this message in this series with a phrase we heard Jesus say before in Matthew chapter 6, now repeated here. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The third lesson, serve God rather than money because you cannot serve both. That will help us use our possessions for eternity, not the temporal. Money is not the problem. It never has been. The love of money is the problem. And God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him and not satisfied in other things. Did you wonder how the story of King Midas ended? 
Do you know what happened next? After Marigold was turned to gold, in desperation, King Midas raised his arms and prayed to Dionysus to take this curse from him. This curse. The god heard his cry and told him to wash his hands in the river Pactolus, where he was cured. And in time, all that he had touched was turned back to normal, including his daughter. He had learned to deny the craving for riches. Confess your craving. God has something better. Use your resources that God has given you for eternity, not for the temporal. 